Then call 800-243-9719. And now, here's your host, Kevin Conover. Bring your time and bring your shame. Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, bring Kevin Conover. My website is educateforlife.org.org. And we, are, we have another great show today that we're recording. You can watch us on Facebook or YouTube or Periscope, wherever you like. It's also podcast. And uh, my guest today is Tim Chaffee. Tim, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, Chaffee. Chaffee. Okay. Tim Chaffee. And he's the founder of Midwest Apologetics. He works as the content manager with the Attractions Division of Answers in Genesis. He's written or co-authored several books, including In Defense of Easter, God and Cancer, The Truth Chronicles series, and the book we're going to be talking about today, which is The Sons of God and the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim, anytime this word comes up, all kinds of people's ears perk up and everybody's like, what are the Nephilim? They're these mysterious uh, creatures mentioned in the book of Genesis. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, you can check it out. And everybody wants to know what, what in the world is going on here. I'll read the scriptures here just so you can uh, get the content here. It says here, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. And verse four here, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And this is really interesting because um, all throughout history, since this was written, uh, people have argued back and forth about what in the world are the Nephilim. And Tim just recently came out with a book just a few weeks ago. It's called Fallen, the Sons of God and the Nephilim, the most thorough study on the topic available. And so, uh, Tim, give us your background. How did you get interested in in the Nephilim? And um, why is this the most thorough book uh, on the subject? Well, one of the reasons I became interested, and this, this is a little bit humorous, is because I am about six feet, nine inches tall. Oh my gosh, you, you, you are a Nephilim. Is you, that can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine the number of times I've been called that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I've been called giant all my life, well, ever since I was about eight, and I was really tall. <laughs> wow, six um, foot nine. When did you, when did you hit, your, uh, hit six nine? Uh, when I was about 15, I oh went my from goodness. like 5'8 to 6'8 from 7th grade to ninth grade. And, um, and so I shot up pretty quickly and people have used, you know, they call me giant. I've uh, been called Nephilim plenty of times in my life by people who know their Bibles. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, I need to dig into this a little bit. Um, I've always been fascinated by the pre-flood world uh, by Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, you mentioned earlier that I'm the, the content manager with the Ark Encounter and the, the Creation Museum. Uh, for Answers in Genesis. And I, I do want to clarify that um, the ministry, Answers in Genesis, doesn't take an official position on this topic. So anything that I'm going to be saying today is not, or should not be viewed as the official position of Answers in Genesis. We have a, a non-position position. But uh, so the book is uh, are, represents my own views. But I, I wanted to, since I've always been ta- uh, fascinated by this topic or this that whole section of scripture, I really wanted to get to the bottom of this issue because so many people kind of gloss over it. There's so many um, popular level writings that I know there, there are a lot of mistakes or a lot of assumptions being made, a lot of sensationalism. And I thought, let me find a really good 
serious study on the topic, and I really couldn't find any. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it became time to do my my thesis for my my THM uh, back in 2010, I thought, well, maybe I can do this topic. And uh, so I proposed that, and my readers uh, said that uh, you know that would be a good idea. My mentor uh, for the THM, and uh, that's what I did. And uh, for the last eight years, I've been working on revising and updating and expanding. And a 140-page paper became a nearly 500-page book. Wow, that's awesome. And and when you say um, a serious study on the subject, are you talking about uh, – what do you what do you mean by, by a serious study versus um, you know something that's not serious? Yeah, I, I guess that's that's a good clarification. I don't want to make it sound like I'm being um, you know negative toward people, other people who have written on the topic. But when you look on online, there's a lot of uh, hype, a lot of sensationalism. There are a lot of uh, really poor arguments being used uh, when people are discussing this topic. You know, they'll get into all sorts of end times conspiracies. There's a, there's no shortage of books that you can find that mention the word Nephilim in the title. And, and they always have some sort of government cover up angle or some sort of uh, conspiracy thing. And uh, it, it, it's a, sensa- a sensationalized end times perspective or something. And I thought, you know, let's, the Bible doesn't have a lot of that. Let's just focus on what this passage means. Yeah, and uh, so that's that's what I set out to do is try to figure out what are these four verses and any other relevant passages in scripture that relate to them. What are they saying? Absolutely. So when you um, before we get into you know the view that you've come up with and everything, so uh, you've written a, a very thorough book on the subject. Um, are you are you looking uh, extra biblical also, or is this just an exegetical? Uh, a focus on the exegetical uh, explanation. So are you looking strictly at scripture? Or are you looking uh, at historical evidence? What are you looking at? Yeah, it, it's more of a, I guess I could say, if, if your listeners are familiar with more of a systematic approach. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to start I'm going to start with scripture, look at everything that it had to say on the topic, uh, look at the church's historical perspective on this, and also ancient uh, Judaism, look at their perspective on this, because they have been interpreting the Old Testament longer than Christians have. Yeah. And uh, what, what did they say? What had the Church said throughout throughout the centuries? And are, is there historical evidence for some of these things? Is there, uh, are there, does science come into play at all in this? So i uh, start with the scriptures. That's the, that's my ultimate authority on this. And then the other things can be brought in as um, uh, supplementary uh, evidence, if you will. Okay, that makes sense. And then, did you, um, did you, what are the most outrageous theories on the Nephilim that you're kind of like, you know, that that's absolutely silly, uh, you know, and, and kind of push that to the side? Uh, are there any that yeah. pop out in your mind? Yeah, there's some outrageous ones. You'll, you'll see these on uh, like the History Channel with um, that Ancient Aliens program that they run. I think it's like in season 13 or 14 now. And some, for some reason, that's extremely popular and it's, it's a very poorly researched, but there's a lot of sensationalism. And, and a lot of people on those shows will say, well, Nephilim means like um, ones that fell from the sky. And it's um, it's talking about uh, aliens who came down in the past and visited Earth. And these are the ones who helped build the pyramids or all of those things. And but the problem is that the word Nephilim, it, it doesn't mean fallen ones. That's one of the big mistakes that a lot of Christians make when they're discussing this topic. And it's one that you'll, you'll find over and over and over again online. But Nephilim means fallen ones. Well, it doesn't. And they'll say that it's coming from the Hebrew verb nephal, 
which, which does mean to fall, but it, it actually doesn't come from that. That would give you two different words. It would give you either the word nephilim, which is not the same as nephilim, or nephilim, if you were going to try to make it a participle. It actually comes from the Aramaic word, an Aramaic noun, nafil, which means giant. And when you make that plural in Aramaic, it is nephilim. And if you were to bring that into Hebrew, it has an M ending instead of an N ending. And so it becomes nephilim. It really just means giant. Oh, wow. Okay, huh. That's awesome. And uh, so so um, as you're writing this book uh, and you're going, you're weeding through all these different things and uh, looking them out, um, do you feel like as you were going through it, you learned a lot of new information or is it kind of stuff that you were like, you know, this is really what I thought the answer was uh, or, or um, were you kind of uh, thrown off by, oh, wow, I, this is something new that I, I, I didn't realize? No, I would say I learned quite a bit. In fact, the point I just raised about uh, the, the meaning of the word Nephilim, when I set out on my uh, my research for my THM, I thought it meant fallen ones because that's what I had read on so many different online articles. And when I started looking in uh, commentaries and academic commentaries, I couldn't find anybody who said that. And when I looked at the um, lexicons, I couldn't find a lexicon that said that. They all said it means, at least the primary definition, with giants. And uh, they would give the background for it. Some of them would say it's, you know, dubious, we're not 100% certain, but most of the other ones would just say it's giants. And I finally found one commentary that tried to make the connection to fallen ones in a footnote, but it said that that's unlikely. And I thought, you know what, why is everybody saying this? And it's all based on a misunderstanding. And it's one of those things that I think at the popular level, it becomes, you know, people run with it. They've heard it over and over again, and they just assume that it's true. Yeah, they don't uh, take the time to study a- it or... Look into it. They just go, right. "Hey, this is what I've heard over and over again." So it must be what, what exactly. the right answer. Yeah, and I and there were a lot of eye-opening moments for me as I was going through my my overall view didn't change. I mean, I, I had the same overall perspective on the passage, but there were a lot of things that along the way I thought, "Well, that makes a lot more sense now," or I never realized that part of it. Or, I didn't know how it connected to this part of scripture, and uh, it really was eye-opening. Uh, in fact, I would say. Uh, this might sound like an overstatement, but I would say the whole Old Testament really comes alive when you start to understand this topic in in detail. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I would never have guessed that. I mean, a, a lot of people I know, you know, um, this question comes up all the time. I, I'm an apologist myself, and I, I speak at different uh, youth camps and different places, and very frequently uh, this question will come up one way or another. Somebody will ask me about the Nephilim, and... Um, you're saying that this this very issue actually illuminates a lot of other issues that pertain to the Old Testament and so forth. It, it does. It really does help us understand what's going on in a lot of other passages. You mentioned uh, that you're an apologist, and so you've probably heard people um, criticize the Bible or criticize God's character, saying, why would he wipe out all of the Canaanites? Why would he tell Joshua? Yeah, oh, that's a huge issue. Yeah, that's a huge one. Why would, he, why would he say kill all yeah. the men, women, and children? Yeah, Tim. Um, say that in I want to put. I want to uh, take a little break right here. This is a great place to kind of uh, tease our, our listeners here to stay with us into the next okay. segment because uh, that's very interesting. My guest today is Tim Chaffee, and he is the author of Fallen, the Sons of God and the Nephilim. He has spent more than a decade um, doing research on this particular topic. So stay with us. We're going to get some answers from him. My website's educateforlife.org, and uh, I encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. It just came out a couple weeks ago. If, if you're interested in this subject and you want to learn more about it. Okay, we're going to be right back. 
Fastlane Kayaking sells popular Hobie Cat kayaks that you pedal, not paddle. That means your hands are left free for fishing and fun. Just throw these on your roof rack. They're light and they're easy to use and maintain. Just rinse them off. Try one free on a demo ride. For 36 years, Ron and Debbie Lane have served San Diego with fun, family-friendly water sports of all kinds. Learn more. FastlaneSailing.com. 619-222-0766. I will cast Thanks for being with us today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. We air live on FM 106.1 in North County. I'm sorry, um, we're, we're pre-recording for Sunday. Um, and we also are on AM 1210 San Diego. That's locally here in San Diego. Uh, Tim is actually back in Kentucky. And, uh, but you can also watch us on, the, uh, on YouTube, our YouTube channel. You can check us out on Periscope or Facebook. My Facebook page, the Educate for Life Facebook page. Uh, and we podcast, so we have all kinds of fantastic shows. Uh, just last week, I had on a guy who was in the New Age movement who actually was getting involved in um, things like astral projection and all kinds of weird, crazy stuff. As young as four years old, he was from Hawaii, actually spoke to spirits, Hawaiian spirits, ultimately ended up becoming a Christian, and now he reaches out to those who are involved in things like uh, the New Age movement and the occult. He's a pastor up in uh, Washington, planning a church, Calvary Chapel pastor. So uh, all kinds of amazing interviews, testimonies from people all over the world who are talking about uh, how the Bible and the relationship with Jesus Christ has radically impacted their life. And uh, Tim, you know, for a lot of people, when they hear the word Nephilim come up, uh, immediately they think to themselves, uh, unsolvable riddle, not worth spending your time on. Um, doesn't really have an impact on my relationship with God or my view of the Bible. So, you know, fun to talk about, but not really worth spending a lot of, t- of your time studying. How would you respond to somebody who said something like that? Yeah, I think I've heard that quite a bit. You know, why would you spend so much time working on this project? If, you know, it's just a side issue or it's just a strange passage in Genesis. Well, my first response is if they believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God, then I would say the Holy Spirit must have had a reason for including this. So it shouldn't be something that we just gloss over and and deem unimportant. Mm. Um, It may not be, you know, certain passages are going to be more relevant to us today than other passages. It doesn't mean that they're more authoritative or uh, more important in in the long run. It might just be more relevant to our own situation in life. Um, So I understand why people are saying that we want, we focus on the gospel, we focus on discipleship, but we also are supposed to study God's Word and to know it and uh, to do our best to understand it. And so I think it's a mistake to gloss over anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, th- and then just like you were saying, um, in I was reading on your um, page, um, by the way, if you want to check out uh, more information about Tim's book or uh, Tim is an apologist, he speaks, um, best site, Tim, midwestapologetics.org, is that correct? Uh. Yeah, actually, that's my old site. Okay. Uh, the newest one is um, there's is Risen, Risen Ministries, so it's just risenmin.com. Risenmin.com. Yep, and if they want to find out more about the book itself, they can go to nephilimbook.com. Okay, nephilimbook.com. And um, so you, were, you wrote on uh, your site, I was looking at it, and uh, you mentioned that it solves two big issues uh, that people struggle with regarding God. And you, you mentioned in the last segment, you said something about um, how 
people get upset when they hear that God wiped out all the Canaanites or wiped out all the Amalekites. I mean, the the new atheists, that's one of their most uh, passionate attacks against the Bible is that God is immoral. He wiped out all these people, including uh, women and children. And uh, so how does this issue uh, speak to that? Yeah, well, well, first and foremost, I would I, I always point out when it's coming from an atheist that they don't really even have the moral ground to stand on to say that it's immoral for God to do that. They have to assume morality is true. That's <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Mor- morality, and they have no basis for that. But, uh, yeah, as we were talking about right before the break, um, when you look carefully at what's going on in Joshua, particularly chapters 10 and 11, there are certain times where God says, kill every one, last one of them, all the, all the people, so men, women, and children, and also the beasts that are there. And when you compare that to the other passages when God doesn't say that, and you look at the, the locations where he's telling them to do that, the only time he tells them to kill them all is in places where there were the, the giants, the Nephilim, or the um, Bible also describes them as Anakim in the land. So God is doing something different than what most people assume. They think he's just, um, you know, just carrying out vengeance. But he told Abraham back in Genesis 15 that he was going to, Abraham's descendants would go, would have that land that he was giving to them as their possession, but they were going to have to go to a land that was not their own for 400 years and serve them. And of course, that's talking about Egypt. Yeah. But then they would return to that land. They would go back to where Abraham was and that would, that he was going to give it to him. Well, Abraham happened to be in Hebron at that point. And then Isaac lived in Hebron and Jacob lived in Hebron and Joseph, when he was young, lived there. And when uh, we know the enemy could have heard that command or at least known that. And so when the Israelites come back to take possession of the land, where are the Anakim, these giants that, that we're told in Numbers 1333, the Anakim are of the Nephilim, where are the Anakim headquartered, the sons of Anak? They're in Hebron. Oh, interesting. It's huh? as if the, yeah, it's as if the enemy knew that God said, hey, your descendants are going to come back to this land, and, and Satan's saying, no, they're not. I'm going to prevent them. And, of course, we know he, he can't stop God from accomplishing what he's going to do. Yeah. But it, it sure seems like he's trying to. Yeah, it does. That's so, yeah, we know from Deuteronomy that God told Moses, hey, when the Israelites enter the land, um, these nations or cities that are far off from you, you can make them an offer of peace, and if they... You know, if they surrender, they can be your servants. But in other places, he says, kill every last one of them. And, and they're put under, in Hebrew, it's the kerem. It's the devoted to destruction. And that's uh, that's what happened in any place where they had these giants. So, okay, so when you were looking at this, um, what where do you fall on this as far as, okay, wh- so what are these Nephilim exactly? They're, you said uh, the word means giants. Um mm-hmm. And it says here in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Um, So how are these giants being produced? I mean, from from a creationist perspective, uh, uh, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but... um, you know, our genetics over time has get, gotten progressively worse. I, I read uh, Dr. John Sanford's book on uh, the human genome and the genetic decay. And um, where Adam and Eve were, we would say, really, really healthy. And then what's happening here along the way um, that's producing these Nephilim and these creatures that God is not, uh, you know, he's not allowing to live? 
Yeah, well, I think you just read it in verse 4, although the, um, many English Bibles will have uh, one word that's um, mistranslated and leads to a lot of confusion. Okay. So it, it actually says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, so before the flood and also after the flood, whenever the sons of God, rather than the word when, and that's the Hebrew word asher, hmm. uh, you can look at the different Hebrew grammars and they'll tell you that in this construct, this word should be translated as whenever because it's something that happened in the past and at fixed or irregular intervals since then. So if you think, if you read it that way, it clarifies everything. The the Nephilim were, so the giants were on the earth in those days before the flood, and also after the flood, whenever the sons of God went into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. In other words, the Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So the real question is, who are the sons of God? Mm. And there are three main views throughout church history on that. The earliest view, and the earliest view of the ancient Jews from all the writings that we have from the intertestamental period, the first two centuries of the church, they all viewed the, the sons of God as angelic beings who rebelled against God. And you can see that same term in Hebrew, the B'nai Ha-Elohim, used in Job three different times, where it's clearly referring to angelic beings, and uh, one other place in Scripture as well. But uh, the two other views, one of them says the sons of God are the descendants of um, the, in the, the men in the line of Seth, going all the way down to Noah. And their sin was that they were marrying ungodly women from the line of Cain. So, so you know, the, the line of Genesis 4 with Cain, the line of Genesis 5 with, with Seth. And there are plenty of textual problems with that. I have a whole chapter in the book just on looking at, at that view and the arguments for it and then how well it measures up. The other view, which uh, is, has been less common up until about the last 40 or 50 years, it's starting to become more popular among scholars, is known as the royalty view or the divine tyrant view where the sons of God were like rulers or judges or kings who um, they saw pretty women in their land and they just took them and brought them into their harems and their sin was polygamy and that's one of the reasons that God sent the flood is because of uh, this, this sin of polygamy. Uh, neither one of those explain why the offspring would be giants. And the, the royalty view depends on the, the phrase took wives you know, it sounds bad in English, doesn't it? If it said so-and-so took a wife. Or, yeah. But that's, just, that's the typical Hebrew idiom in Genesis for marriage. Abraham took Keturah as wife. Isaac took Rebekah as wife. And we know that he didn't force her. She came willingly with, with Abraham's servant. Isaac had never, never even met her. Yeah. So um, a question comes up about this, and that is that, so um, how in the world do spiritual beings have a physical relationship, a, a sexual relationship with, uh, you know, humans. And so mm-hmm. do you have a, a theory on that? I don't want to get into it yet because we're coming up on a break, but do you have a theory on that? Well, um, it's tricky because we, we're, we tend to think that they are just ethereal beings, you know, floating out there, that they're, they don't have a, a physical form or anything. But when we look at what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that the people of Sodom certainly thought the angels that were there, the two angels, were physical. had a physical form that they could do something with. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're we're coming up on a break here. My my guest today is Tim Chaffee, and uh, risenmen.com is his website, risenmen.com. If you want to check out his book on the Nephilim, that's nephilimbook.com. Please check those out. A fantastic book. We're talking about the Nephilim today. We've got two more segments left, so stay with us. We're going to continue to explore this subject, something that a lot of people are very curious about. So we'll be right back. Thank you. 
When you need tires or service, count on Conover Tires, Wheels, and Service in Oceanside for a full range of affordable options in all the brands you trust. See their great customer reviews and special offers online. Hours Tuesday through Friday, 730 to 530, and Saturdays, 730 to 5. Call Dan and his team at 760-439-1631. Conover Tires, Wheels, and Service, 2405 Oceanside Boulevard in Oceanside, 760-439-1631. Thanks for listening today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org. And I've got uh, over 40 classes online that you can check out if you're interested in signing up for the classes. It's a full curriculum that you can go through, basically a systematic approach to apologetics where we cover all the different questions that people have about God and the Bible, and it'll walk you through all those different stages. We talk about creation and evolution, world religions. We talk about how do we know the Bible is actually God's word. And then we deal with social issues, too. What about the issue of abortion or homosexuality? These issues that are uh, come up frequently in our culture today, uh, which has become increasingly skeptical. Um, as Christians, we want to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. We want to be able to demolish arguments that set, set themselves up against the knowledge of God. That's what God has called us to do, to be able to love people to Christ um, by being truthful with them, being able to uh, rightly divide the Word of God, right? Being able to share it with others, and at the same time, be, be doing it because we love people, because we care about them, because we're concerned about their eternity. And today, uh, a very important topic is the issue of the Nephilim, uh, which, which uh, comes up frequently, but a lot of times the answers that are provided aren't very solid answers, and they're not biblically-based answers. But my guest today, Tim Chafee, uh, risenmen.com, nephilimbook.com. Uh, he has written a very, very thorough book on the subject, Fallen, the Sons of God and the Nephilim. And uh, Tim, when we were leaving off there, we were, we were talking about, um, you know, so, so the theory that um, you come down on is that these, the sons of God who are having physical relationships, sexual relationships with the daughters of men are actually fallen angels. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. And why do you think that this is um, the most... Uh, compelling answer to this question of of the sons of God here in the Nephilim? Well, first and foremost, I would say that I, I think that's exactly what the language of the text is saying. Uh, when you look at that, that Hebrew term, B'nai Ha'elohim, in Genesis 6-2 and 6-4, which is translated as sons of God, the only, only other time that's used in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's referring to angelic beings. Uh, so, for example, in Job 38-7, when it says that the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy. That's the same term, and it's referring to when God had laid the foundation of the earth. It's before mankind's even made, so it can't be referring to human beings there. And the same thing's true in Job 1 and 2, when it says that the, there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. It's referring to this meeting in the heavenlies, so to speak. Mm. Um, and so there's the sons of God there as well. So that's the way the term is used throughout the Old Testament, there's one place where, the, you know, some of the Old Testament's written in Aramaic, uh, like about half of Daniel. And when Nebuchadnezzar throws the, the, the three youths into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he goes to look at it, he says, I see a fourth one walking around in the furnace. And he has the appearance or, of a 
and he used the, the Aramaic Bar Elohim, which is the equivalent. And then a, a few verses later, he says that, you know, the God of the Hebrews has sent his angel. So it, he actually equates those two terms for us. And it shows us how that, that term was used. It's the earliest, like I mentioned before, it's the earliest view among all of the Jewish writers during the intertestamental period. It's the view of the early church fathers. And I think it's also the view that you see in the New Testament. I think that Jude refers to it in his letter. Talks about angels that didn't keep their own uh, position but deserted their proper dwelling, and then he puts that in the same context as what was happening at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you see, First and Second Peter also speak of angels who sinned in the days of Noah, or spirits who sinned in the days of Noah that are held in chains of darkness until the day of judgment. So I think it's a a consistent reading of the passages throughout Scripture. Yeah, and I, so that's that's why I find it to be the most compelling. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, um, do you think that there's any relationship here between the, uh, you know, I read uh, the book Alien Tr- Intrusion by uh, Gary Bates, um, and he talks about how the phenomenon of alien abductions and uh, so forth, there's a very, there's a lot of uh, sexual overtones in alien abduction stories. And mm-hmm. he, he concludes that this is actually a demonic thing. Um, do you think there's, have, have you thought at all about the connection there? I have. In fact, I have, uh, chapter 31 in the book is called Have Evil Spirits Continued to Assault Women? And what I do is I trace historically um, from, uh, really from like the 300s and 400s all the way up to modern day, where there are things that sound very similar. Mm. Um, you know, even somebody like uh, Augustine, the church father, he, he could not stand the fallen angel view. But he had the statement about how he's heard so many other people report that it would, you know, it, you'd be foolish to deny it, but that um, the incubus and the succubus have made wicked assaults upon women and, you know, while they sleep. And so he's talking about how these demons sexually assault women while they sleep. He believed that, but he didn't hold to the fallen angel view of Genesis 6, which is a little bit ironic. That is. Uh, but you, yeah, but you see the same thing throughout history. Um, like I mentioned, the incubus and the succubus, the sylvans and the fawns, early, that's what they were early on as well. So I have a whole chapter going through that. And I do mention the alien abduction uh, scenario, and um, I'm familiar with, with the book that you mentioned and the, the, the movie that they made as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, I'm not going to say every single time somebody claims that they were abducted by aliens. This was, you know, demonic stuff. Yeah. I think there's times where it's, I hope sometimes it might be psychological. There, there may be a lot of things going on, but I find it fascinating uh, that the times where somebody cried out to Jesus to have it stop, it instantly stops. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty, um, uh, that seems a, a little coincidental. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, another question for you, you know, something that's really interesting in the book of Daniel, how you talk about uh, one that was like a son of God. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, we also know that's where the phrase son of man comes from for Jesus, because uh, Daniel later on says, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds in glory. And then Jesus mm-hmm. later on refers to himself. I'm that I'm essentially that one. I'm the son of man. Um, because it's within the same book there. Uh, what is the contrast between, you know, the phrase or, or is there any, I don't, I'm just asking, is there any difference between um, when Daniel uses that phrase son of man versus the phrase he uses uh, son of God? Um, or do you, do you, have you looked into that at all? Is that something that's... Yeah, I've looked, I mean, it's, it's not, obviously it's not the same term. Yeah. Um, but it, because, yeah, son of man is, is viewed as a messianic 
title there. He's the one who comes before the Ancient of Days and he's given the dominion and glory and, and kingdom. And you're right, he, he used that New Testament, especially before the high priest. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, and he, he cites this passage. Um, but in Daniel, really what the term refers to when, when it says B'nai Ha-Elohim, the, the word Elohim is um, used about 2,000 times in the Bible. And about 90% of the time, it refers to the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Uh, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And that's how it's used most of the time. But it's also used to refer to angels. Um, you made them a little bit lower than the Elohim, Psalm 8.5 talks about. Uh, and Hebrews quotes that and says angels. Uh, it's used in Deuteronomy 32.17 to talk about demons. And it's used uh, in 1 Samuel 28 when Saul goes to um, the, the witch or the medium at Endor, yeah, and she tried to call up Samuel and said that she saw a spirit ascending out of the abyss. She saw a, um, out of the pit, out of the pit, I should say. She saw an Elohim ascending out of the pit. So what it really refers to, it's not just, it's not a name for God. It's a, it's a title. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name, his name is Yahweh. But what it's referring to is an entity who is, belongs to the spiritual realm. That's where they usually move about. And uh, so it's always referring to a spiritual entity. So somebody who's a son of that, it just means that they're part of that class. Like uh, the Bible speaks of the sons of the prophets that uh, Saul went to one time, Samuel was there, and uh, Elijah and Elisha speak of the sons of the prophets. It doesn't mean they were all physical sons of prophets. It just means they belong to that class or that school oh, okay. of prophets. So that's how that Hebrew term is used when it says son of, in that sense, it's belonging to the, the spiritual. That makes sense. So um, we're coming up on a, a, our last break here, but um, so I'm curious to know, you know, how big do you think uh, these giants were, these sons of uh, the, the Nephilim, how big were they? And is, is there a relationship there with Goliath? And then uh, I'm also curious to know if there's any um, archaeological evidence or uh, extra-biblical evidence that supports this idea of giants actually being around. So my guest today is Tim Chaffee, risenmen.com, nephilimbook.com. You can check him out. He's the author of Fallen, the Sons of God and the Nephilim. Very interesting subject to be uh, studying and uh, relevant too, uh, surprisingly relevant because it deals with the issue of Okay, why did God wipe out certain people in the Old Testament? Uh, so that's a very important subject. So feel free to uh, check him out and check out what he's doing, his ministry. He speaks all over the place. So if you're looking for somebody to speak on apologetics, this is a great uh, option. And um, we're going to be right back. We have one more segment left, so stay with us. Gibson of LG Equipment supports Educate for Life with Kevin Conover. Luke grew up in the construction industry and now serves LG's commercial and residential customers throughout Southern California. Whether you need grading, paving, hauling, demolition, on-site bulk water service, water trucks, tankers, and towers, call LG Equipment at 619-998-0924. Learn more at lgequipment.com. 619-998-0924. Thanks for being with us today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover, and uh, we got a beautiful summertime uh, summer happening here in San Diego, Southern California. Um, I'm on 
KPraise 106.1, that's FM 106.1 in North County, as well as AM 1210 here in San Diego. Uh, we broadcast locally, and that'll air on Sunday at 10 p.m. We also are podcasting. We're on YouTube, on the YouTube channel. We're on Facebook. So there's all kinds of avenues. You can check this information out. You can share it. You can see previous interviews. We got interviews with archaeologists, with famous scientists, with uh, people who are former atheists, former Muslims, all kinds of amazing interviews with people. I've got, uh, I believe, over somewhere around 150 interviews now. And uh, so if you need that resource, if you would find that useful, please check it out. Educateforlife.org is my website. All kinds of resources there for you. My guest today is Tim Chaffee, risenmen.com. He is also involved in working with Answers in Genesis, uh, a fantastic ministry there in Kentucky. And and you can check that ministry out also, answersingenesis.org. AIG. Um, so Tim, when we left off, uh, we were talking about the Nephilim. It looks like from your perspective, these are giants. They're literally the offspring of a, uh, essentially a relationship God didn't want to happen, which is between fallen angels and, uh, humans and, uh, uh, women. And these giants are being produced, uh, through this relationship somehow. I don't know how the genetics and all that works, but um, but for some reason, these angels are able to manifest physically. And that looks like that, that is scriptural. Um, how big do you think the offspring, uh, of these sons of God were? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Yeah. Uh, actually chapter 24 in my book is called how tall were the giants. Mm. And when you look online, this is where I mentioned some of the sensational things that are out there. You'll see some people saying they were 24 feet tall, 36 feet tall, or, you know, they, they have all sorts of these, you know, mock-up of skeletons that would be really, really tall. Yeah. And th- there's some, there's a lot of problems with making them too large. And I'll just give you a, a, an example. I mentioned that I'm about six foot nine and I, I weigh roughly 250 pounds. So if King Og, who's mentioned in Deuteronomy 3, and it mentioned the, the length of his bed, that it was 13 and a half feet long, and he's the last of the Rephaim, which is another term for giants. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if he was as tall as his bed is long, that would mean he's exactly twice my height. So people want to say that he was 13 feet, six inches tall. That would mean if he were my, my build, um, he would not, he wouldn't, you don't just double the weight. You would have to multiply the weight by eight. That would make him 2000 pounds. Whoa. (laughs) And so that starts to create all sorts of stresses on the the skeletal structure and on the, on the organs and all sorts of other issues. So I I find it very difficult to think that he could have been that tall. Yeah. Um, I had a friend in, uh, in high school who, he was very, very tall, maybe somewhere around your height. And he actually had problems uh, because his heart could not, was having trouble pumping the blood all the way down to his feet and then all the way back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's very common for people who are, who are really large. Yeah. Um, so you have uh, Goliath in the, in the Masoretic text, which is what we use for our Old Testament, generally speaking, is mentioned as being six cubits in a span, so about nine foot nine. Uh, there's some other manuscripts that have him being a bit shorter, uh, maybe even down to my height, six foot, nine, six foot nine, which is hard to imagine the entire uh, Israel army being afraid of somebody my size. But yeah. um, and him carrying all the weaponry that he has, the the, the armor, the armor that he has, and when it describes the weight of those things, um, it's very difficult to think he was just my size. But we do have uh, you had mentioned before the break, wondering what archaeological evidence. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't we don't have any 
skeletons or, or bones or anything. There, there are a lot of reported ones, but nothing that's been verified. Mm. Yeah, and, I've looked them uh, up so on the internet, and there's lots of pictures, but um, you can't really find yeah. anything that supports those pictures. <laughs> no, in fact, there was a Photoshop contest maybe about 15 years ago with, where people were digging up giant skeletons, and all they are is just normal skeletons, and they would put people by them and make them a lot larger, larger to make the people look tiny. And yeah. uh, some of the skeletons are the same in different digs, so it's obviously fake. Um, but we do have um, several Egyptian writers writing that speak of the Anakim being in the land, and uh, they also call them the Shasu. Um, and in their, in one of their writings, I believe it's called Craft of the Scribe, and I've got this in the book as well, they mention them being up to about eight foot seven. Oh, that's and huge. In, yeah, it is pretty big. That, that puts it in that Goliath range. And then you also have, um, uh, let's, you have a, a actual a, a relief, a carving of two Shasu spies being captured. And it, it showed the Egyptians beaten on them with like little whips. And the two spies are down on their knees and on their knees, they're as big. They're already as tall as the people who are standing over them, beating them. Oh, wow. Now in a lot of reliefs like that, you would make your, your king really big. You would never make your captives big and look more important unless they actually were really big. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah. So there's a picture of that in the book. So I, I estimate that they were probably somewhere between eight to 10 feet. Um, and you know, you have in the Bible where, one of David's mighty men fought against a, an Egyptian man who was really large. He called him a man of measure. He was five cubits tall, which was about seven and a half feet tall. But it doesn't identify him as a giant. But the other one that does talk about being giants, like descendants of Goliath, and they seem like maybe they were a bit bigger than that. Huh, that's really interesting. So, um, so there is plenty of evidence to support it, both extra-biblical and, of, of course, from a... Uh, exegetical perspective too, like you said, a systematic uh, study of the scriptures. Um, it does look like this is true. Now, um, earlier when we were talking, we were, you were talking about how God uh, wipes out people where these, these groups of people are mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. And you said there are two popular skeptical arguments that are raised against the character of God that once you get a grip on this, it helps to answer those. Um, what, what was the second one or, how does how is that integrated there? Yeah, well, the second one would actually be if you think about before the flood. Yeah, and so people wonder why would God, you know, wipe out the whole world? And if you read this passage from the other perspective, is He going to wipe out the whole world because you had godly men marrying ungodly women? Mm -hmm. Is He going to wipe it out because you had kings, you know, taking women into their harems? These are things that have happened throughout history without severe judgment being leveled on the whole world. Yeah. But you, but you, if you have this going on in abundance, and then you have the passage in uh, Genesis six where it says that uh, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a man perfect in his generations, and what, I'm I'm not completely positive on this point, uh, but I've been told by one of the top Hebrew scholars in the world um, that the word there in this context refers to Noah being unblemished or untainted. Which so would his, mean that that would be why his why he gets to go through and live through the flood, whereas the rest of the people were uh, tainted in some way. Which, if this passage, uh, you know, Genesis six one through four, my understanding is correct, it seems like they had uh, influenced most of the world in that way. Mm. And so, if you think about the importance of that, 
the Messiah had to be a descendant of Noah, mm. and he had to be a descendant of Adam. So if they had done this, if they had infected the, the line so much that Jesus would come through them, then would he be the son of God, or would he be one of the son of the son of one of these other entities? That's interesting. So, so are are you saying there's a physical aspect to you know genetically uh, somebody being uh, tainted, or, or uh, how does this where does this land us theologically when it comes to that sort of thing? Um, you know, perspective that the because of the fallen angels influence these people are essentially. Um, you know, how does this relate to being born a sinner, like David says, right? We're all born into sin. Christ said we're born right. into sin. How does this relate to that as far as, you know, angels versus people being born into sin? So are you asking would the offspring have an opportunity to be saved? Is yeah, I'm, I'm curious as okay. to why they would have to be wiped out. Uh, is there a, do you have a thought on that or what do you think? Well, I, I think if that view is correct about Genesis 6-9, about Noah being untainted, and like I said, I'm not uh, completely convinced of that, but that is from somebody who's quite the expert in Hebrew yeah. saying it. Um, so if that's accurate, then I think what, it, what it's saying is that the, the Messiah can't be a descendant of one of these entities. He can't be descended from somebody who, is, who has that in their heritage. Mm. So he has to be somebody who is... It, really from Adam, not from a different entity. Oh, very interesting. Huh. Well, that's really cool. Um, my guest today was Tim Chaffee, and uh, we're just about out of time here. Risenmen.com, if you want to learn more about his ministry and what he's doing. Nephilimbook.com, if you're interested in picking up the book. Um, that would be great. Uh, and it, there's so much to cover on this subject. There's so many more. How many pages is the book, Tim? Uh, it's nearly 500. I think it's 476. Wow, that that is a, a serious effort. So, so if you really want to know more about this, and you want to have good answers for people who who are asking about it, uh, and you want a good systematic explanation of the Nephilim, uh, check out his book. Tim, thanks so much for being on the program today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for having me. I, I enjoyed it. You got it. I learned a ton, so that was a big blessing. Anyway, I hope you, uh, if you're listening, I hope you're having a great summer so far, and I hope you're having a good time. And we'll be back next week. Um, I'm going to be on. Uh, uh, podcast of Andrew Rappaport uh, tomorrow, and we'll be talking about apologetics and the need uh, in the upcoming generations. Again, my website's educateforlife.org. Check it out when you get a chance. And uh, thanks for being with us today. I hope you have a great day. Did you miss part of today's program? Don't worry, we're committed to helping you get the info you need. Okay, that was dumb. But for real, visit educateforlife.com for podcasts and video recordings of the show and to sign up for the School of Unshakable Faith. Leave us your comments, compliments, questions, or concerns at 800-243.